Hi, and welcome to The Essential Pitch. This is the show which helps you make winning pitches and presentations so you can raise money, win business, and grow your confidence. And you'll learn from people who are doing it at the highest level. I'm David Beckett, pitch coach, TEDx speech coach, and I'm the founder of the Best 3 Minutes Pitch Methodology. And I believe that great ideas need a voice. For more help with creating your winning pitch, go to best3minutes.com. And this podcast is not sponsored. My goal is to share insights and learn more myself from the amazing people we have on the show. So welcome, everybody, and welcome especially to Dan Rome. Dan Rome is the author of many international best-selling books on presenting, with a unique focus on visualizing the concepts presented by drawing. Those books include Back of a Napkin, Draw to Win, and Show and Tell. And he has a brand new book published just yesterday from when we recorded this. It's called The Pop-Up Pitch. And he's been on all the major news channels, as well as helping a lot of major companies and even the Obama White House administration, we're going to talk about that later, to solve complex problems with simple drawings. So Dan, it's a pleasure to have you on the Essential Pitch podcast. Thanks for coming. David, thank you so much for inviting me. I've been looking forward to talking with you for a long time. Your reputation as one of the great pitch people uh, precedes you, and I can't wait to share some of our thoughts. Let's talk about your first public speaking experiences, because you've made a, a real place for yourself in this visualization of presentations, but it's also the whole thing about presenting. So this has been one of your big focuses. What, what was your first experience of public speaking? Oh, David, what a great question. My first first experience at, uh, at public speaking was way, way back yeah. uh, when I probably would have been in kindergarten or first grade, whatever the UK equivalent of that would be. So probably age six or seven or eight. Yeah. Uh, and we had something in class, not surprisingly, called show and tell, which was the moment where you got to bring your favorite toy from home and you got to go to the front of the room and show it and yeah. talk about it. And it was unprompted. It was unprepared. You just got up there and uh, with both a little bit of terror and the pure joy of being able to get in front of your, your friends and classmates and share. And I remember sharing this red airplane toy that I had that I just utterly loved. Um, and I took to it. And I realized that for me, uh, and this is going to play out a little bit, David, as, as we go through our conversation and, and evolve from when we were children up to where we are now, um, I really enjoyed that idea of taking a physical object, something that was tangible that you could mm -hmm. actually see in this particular case, this red airplane and being able to talk about it. Because what I found was I had no fear and I didn't have to worry about forgetting what I wanted to say, because all I had to do was look at the thing in my hand and say, oh, and look at this aspect of it or this attribute of it. So without a lot of notes, with minimal, if zero preparation, the idea of being able to talk about something that you can see always struck me as being very powerful for a presenter. Um, and later in life, I realized that when I would start to give presentations that would cause me sort of typical presenter anxiety, stage fright, it would be because typically there wasn't something there to show. It would right. just be the tell. So, so that's kind of the story. And um, well, we can dive into more of that. How does that sound? Yeah. So actually, it's it's that's been a, a red thread. Of course, you have a book called Show and Tell, and that's a red thread of, of what your work has evolved into is this combination of, okay, you've got something to tell, but the easiest way to show it is is to have something visual. Exactly. But I, what I also find interesting is is that you you know when you look at the the drawings that you have firstly uh, it's complex problems simple drawings that's that's the the phrase that really jumps out at me and also quite optimistic i find there's a lot of optimism in the things that you draw there's always smiling people there's there's happy there's kapow kind of uh, aspect to it so that that aspect of making things simple even sometimes so-called childlike, what, what, where did that come from? Did that come from that first experience or that's just been how you've evolved? Well, it came from the first experience and also evolution and also, well, David, like you, I mean, we're, we're not new in this career of being people hmm. who speak publicly and, and share ideas. So there's been ups and downs along the way. And we've, I'm sure like you, we've tried different things. And yeah. what I've realized for myself is that I both enjoy more and have the greatest impact with an audience or a team when 
I feel positive about the thing that we're talking about. Now, we can get into this a little bit later because one of the things that is is core to this newest book that you mentioned, the pop-up pitch, is the idea that as a presenter or someone with a pitch to share, I believe your best way to do it is through a story. And no surprise, the the, the rise of story in, in, in business presentations is nothing new. But if you think about a story, you have stories that end sadly, uh, Shakespearean tragedy. There's, they're great. You have stories that are very chaotic, a, a Kafka-esque type of, of craziness or something surreal. Yeah. And then, of course, you have stories that end on a positive note. So things that might hew to the hero's journey, whether it's a sort of a Star Wars, use the force, Luke, or we can, we yeah. can actually save the world. And what I have found is without a doubt, without any doubt at all, David, if you want to share with someone in a way that is persuasive and have them take action, the more positive you can be about the outcome, the more likely they are to take the action. So I am innately an optimistic and I'd like to think happy person that I was yeah. born that way. And I, I, I thank my parents for that sort of genetic code. But also over time, realizing that the people who keep coming back and keep getting invited back to the stage or make the next presentation are those who share an optimistic story, not the others. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that, Dan. I think it, the reality is that people warm to enthusiasm, right? If people have got a, an optimistic, they look forward, they process on what happens next, they, people find that very magnetic, actually. Yeah, yeah. And and it's interesting, David, because we now are beginning, we, well, the scientists, the cognitive scientists, neurobiologists, linguists, the people who actually spend their, their time actually going in and doing the studying, uh, uh, especially lately with people who are in behavioral economics, is we're beginning to understand at quite literally a chemical level why it is that a positive message hmm. delivered with optimism simply lands in the human brain in a way that is more inspiring to take positive action than anything else. We also know that to the degree that emotions can be measured, it's arguable that the most powerful of all human emotions is, is perhaps fear. Uh, we go back to just very classic, classic uh, limbic brain fight or flight and this idea of fear driving us to take action. But the action you take based on fear, in my book, is usually a poor action. It is usually right. not the action that, in the long run, would have been more beneficial to take. So I try to play it from the other side. If, if fear is the most evocative of the emotions, well, couldn't love, couldn't happiness be equally evocative and bring us to a better outcome? Yes. I'm, I'm so with you on that. <laughs> it's... Uh... Uh, and you mentioned your book, uh, Pop-Up Pitch. Let, let's talk a little bit about, about this. So uh, tell us about the book. You know, it's uh, if I understand rightly, it's already, by the way, number one on Amazon's new releases right now. I, I had a little look and it's uh, showing up really nicely just within a day of being launched. And it's about a two-hour creative sprint to create a great presentation. So tell us a little bit about how that works. What What was the thinking behind two hours? and how the, built is the book is built up. Yeah, David, thank you. Uh, so the, the unofficial subtitle for the book, The Pop-Up Pitch, goes as follows. In two hours, create the 10 pages that will transform any audience. So the essence of the book is I wanted to put together a book, which is in fact a workshop that the, uh, the reader goes through mm -hmm. in less than two hours. And in that time, forget the giant capital investment that so many of us make in spending weeks and weeks working through our PowerPoint yes. and crafting the ideal message. Uh, I think, why don't we take a more pop-up approach to it? And I've put together a set of two tools, one of which enables you to draw very, very quickly. In fact, in about 15 minutes, uh, as, as one goes through the book, in about 15 minutes, you will draw out the essence of your idea without any preparation. You already know, David, in your mind, what it is that you want to share. And the yeah. fastest way to get it out of your mind in my book is to just sketch it out according to a very, again, scientifically based sketching process. So that's one of the tools. The second tool is then now that you've got those drawings down and you've got an idea of what it is that you really want to share, you spend the remaining time in the book in the next hour, turning that into a single templated storyline that is essentially guaranteed to deliver 
a positively persuasive outcome for your audience. How can we guarantee that? Because the storyline that is the core of the book is one that is classic. We can talk more about what that means. Hmm. It is a set of 10 emotional turns that begin by setting common ground and building a little bit of trust with your audience and then moving them through the emotions we talked about before, such as fear and hope and despair and real hope and then gusto and then courage and coming back on the other side. So the idea of the book is to say, none of us have time to read a full business book anymore. All of us are too busy just trying to get through our day. What would happen if we had a simple template that for the most common task all of us in the business world need to do, which is to talk about our business? What if we just had a simple template that you could rely on every single time you needed to make a presentation as a go-to template? And that's what's the core of the pop-up pitch. Very quick, super tactical, super practical, super applicable. And at the end of your two hours, you will have a 10-page document or a 10-slide PowerPoint or a 10-napkin stack of notes, and that's all you need. And when it comes time to share your story about anything, no matter how simple, complex, elaborate, politically laden it may be, it doesn't matter, these 10, these 10 turns will do the job. There's so much in here that uh, resonates from my own thinking and I think will work so well for people you know, the whole time pressure thing, the, the, the shrinking of time, whether that's in reality or people simply feel it, that idea of giving them a, a journey that takes two hours, thats I think that's dynamite, actually. Um, so clearly that was a, a part of it, to try to fit into people's lives, into their, their way of working, right? Well, and, and I'm, assuming, I'm assuming, David, and it's bad to assume, but I'm going to, that yeah. I imagine in the, along with your pitch coaching, I'm guessing you probably do a fair amount of what we might call consulting work, helping someone figure out what the core of their story or their pitch sure. actually is. is. Is that a fair assumption? Yes. Yeah, so so I, I do that as well. And in the act of doing that for these last 20, 25 years, I've realized that the person putting the story together, just like the audience, has a fairly limited amount of attention that, mm. that any one of us can put into crafting our story. Yeah. After two hours, if we're the storyteller working it through, we just don't have the energy anymore to keep working on it. So I thought, mm. how could we reverse engineer the process of putting together a really good story so that you could do it in the amount of time that you as the storyteller remain fresh? throughout the entire duration of crafting your story. And the one thing we haven't mentioned yet, and I want to be really clear on this, the story that then you who took two hours to prepare it are going to deliver, the duration of the story to your audience is going to be about seven minutes long. Right. Those 10 statements, those 10 emotional turns that you will take your audience through in total will last seven minutes, more or less. The idea being, even if you have a half an hour on stage, or even if you have an hour's presentation in the boardroom, nobody really, really wants to listen to you unless you're one of the great speakers of all time right. for more than a few minutes, because people don't really, really want to hear your story. What they really, really want is to hear their own story in yours. Yeah. So what the audience really wants to do is align with your story by making it their own. And you can do that very quickly. And then you use the remaining time that you had in the boardroom after having done your presentation in seven minutes to have the conversation yeah. where you're, you're truly aligning the story that they wanted to hear that they believe will solve their problem with the solution or the product or the pitch that you are making. And that's where the real, the real sale, I believe, takes place. Yeah, that's the bit where it goes from broadcasting to the interaction where there's the discussion, you find out what's on their mind. I have to tell people that the the temptation is to say, here's what we do, but to try to tune into what's happening for them, then to share how what we do helps them, helps them achieve their goals, helps the company achieve their goals, and then to get into that conversation. What What's on your mind? What would you like to cover? So this sounds like a great platform to do that, to get into that interaction part. Well, there's a story, if, if, if I may share it with you, it's actually uh, the opening story in the pop-up pitch. And it's a, it's a real story that took place with me, I want to say about three years ago, mm -hmm. uh, be, before about a year before lockdown. Um, 
I used to travel a lot, as I'm sure you do as well, and probably many of your listeners do. Back, remember those days when we used to jet around the globe and yeah. show up to, to go up on stage and wave our arms and give good <laughs> messages. So a few years ago, I happened to be in Bangkok, which is a favorite city of mine. I've, I've been blessed with spending a fair amount of time in, in Thailand. And I gave a presentation at a big business event. And uh, at the end of the event, a gentleman from one of the largest Thai banks came up to me. He was actually the chairman of this Thai giant Thai bank. And he said, um, Dan, I don't know if you do this, but I actually have a presentation I have to give tomorrow to my board and to the executive suite at the bank. Uh, but here's the reality, if you don't mind me sharing this with you, the presentation I need to give is, is, is quite uh, challenging for mm-hmm. people to hear because it's going to represent a fundamental shift in mm-hmm. what I believe the strategy of our bank ought to be. What I'd like to do is ask you, Dan, to work with me to prepare my my remarks in such a way that they come across as very open and in the form of a story, as you were just advocating. Can you help me? And I I said to him, "Um, yeah, I think I can do that. And so we sat down in a hotel lobby. And over the next couple of hours, the chairman of the bank explained to me what was the complex situation that they faced. And, And essentially, David, without getting into too much detail... The idea was he was going to recommend that the bank, which was very, very large and very, very traditional, actually spin up internally what we here in the US call a challenger bank. So it's like a a smaller, more agile digital version, digital forward version of your own bank that will appeal more to the younger audiences. So because this large traditional bank was being outcompeted in the digital finance space by other smaller banks, they said we should do the same thing. Sure. So the reason I share the story with you is we sat there in the lobby and in the two hours, I listened to him and we crafted not a presentation, but a story that was based on these 10 turns. Hmm. Uh, And by the time we were done, it took us about two hours to do it. It was a prototype for what has now become the pop-up pitch template. And at the end of the two hours, he said, Dan, do you mind telling the story? You tell it better than I do. And I said, sure. And, he, and then he, he, he gave me some of the insights. He said, it's going to be very challenging. We'll be in the board at this very traditional Thai bank. Um, there, there, there will be a lot in the room that is unspoken. You are clearly a foreigner. There's a lot that will be understood that you don't know about the context, uh, sort of traditional Thai business things that are going on in the room. Um, and so be forewarned, it's going to be really interesting, but people will be very respectful of your story. Yeah. And so I went in and now like sweating because what, what has he just told me? Uh, <laughs> no pressure. I went in and, and shared the story in a few minutes Yeah, and we had exactly the conversation that he wanted to have. Right. Uh, and it was beautiful. And it was with that high pressure situation in an afternoon, in the two hours, we presented what became one of the most important presentations that both the chairman and I had given probably in the year. And it was met very, very, very well. And had it been told in a different way, it might yeah. not have been. Yeah, you can get a very different outcome if it had been told differently. And it sounds yeah. like you you kind of tested this out and even developed it in, almost in real time. Constantly. Well, yeah. th- this is the beauty of being able to be both someone who does presentations and write writes books. Yeah. Um, and then as an outcome of that, getting asked by businesses to come in and help them. It's a constant learning journey. You know, we think who we've been around the block a few times. We think we know things and we know a few things, but the beauty of continuing to work with new clients and new opportunities is you're always learning something new. So yeah. everything that's in the book, David, is is developed in real time and then field tested. Many, many, many times and, and fine-tuned until I feel, yep, this this I'm happy to share. Fantastic. And one additional aspect of this book, which is really unique, is the title Pop-Up Pitch. If I understand correctly, the hardcover literally has a pop-up to it. Oh, well, I wish it did, David. I wish it did. In the end, the pop-up aspect of the book was not was de- deemed not realistic by the publisher because it would <laughs> simply cost too much money to do the pop-up. So you know what I said? I'm yeah. going to do it anyway. So I'm going to share this with you because I can see you on the screen. But yeah. sadly, the pop-up version in the book is just on paper. But I did make the actual pop-up version. Uh, I printed 5,000 copies. Oh, wow. um, 
that that I'm I'm sending out as a premium item. So it's a funny play on words. And if I might, some folks have asked Dan, why did you call it the pop up pitch? Two reasons. One we've already described was yeah, thinking like a pop up restaurant or a pop up store. Yes. Uh, the idea being that. If you have a new product you want to test out in the marketplace, you don't need to make a giant capital investment. Let's say you're a restaurateur and you want to try a new, I don't know, something crazy, a new uh, sushi burrito. You know, it's high risk product. Will the market love it? Yeah. You don't have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, investing in a restaurant, in a kitchen, and hiring a lot of staff. You can do a pop up version with a truck or a tent where you test it out. So I was thinking for most of us that are in business who spend this enormous capital investment in creating our PowerPoint, what would happen if we just had a minimum viable product version yeah. of our pitch that we could do again in the two hours? So that's the idea of the pop-up. Just, just test it, see how it goes and open it up to conversation. And then of course, as a kid, as you pointed out, I always loved pop-up books, highly visual, tangible books. And I really yeah. wanted that to be in the book. And in the end, sadly, we, could, we couldn't do it. But maybe if it sells good enough, sells yeah. well enough, we can do a second edition with a pop-up in it. And I love your additional uh, uh, handout with the, the, the pop-up in it, that special edition. That's a great idea. And I think that concept of almost prototyping the pitch, I, I also advise people to sketch their ideas out, to use Post-it notes, get get your ideas out of your head, take a look at them and organize them. And the way that I, what I find with a lot of people is, especially startups are very focused on open up PowerPoint, start typing. That is the job of making a pitch. And what I ask them is, well, would you code your product without mapping out some kind of a customer journey? So then why would you code your presentation before you've sort of mapped out that customer journey? You, it's almost like the storyline, the beginning, middle, and end is a kind of customer journey. And it, you know that picks up on the classic stories, the hero's journey. Those kind of stories tend to be a journey process. So that concept of a customer journey seems to fall and, and land with, uh, with startups. So that MVP idea, sketching it out, then go and test it, say it out loud, find out whether it works for you and then for other people, that, that seems to land, I think. Well, I'm so glad you brought this up, David. This is why I have a business is because it's, it's, I, I, I work both with large enterprises and with a lot of startups. And yeah. you just stated a fact that I find horrifying, which yeah. is well beyond 90% of the time with a startup. You nailed it. The yeah. first thing someone does when they want to compose their thinking about anything yeah. is open up their laptop and start typing. Yeah. It's awful. It's truly awful. The, the evidence is so clear that probably one of the worst ways to effectively encode information or ideas in our mind is through this remote action of typing. It right. separates us so much from the richness of our mind. And the way to reconnect to that richness is just literally the, the tactile, tangible, visceral sense of putting a pencil on paper. The, right. the, the evidence is clear. The actual connection of the loop from mind to hand to paper and moving your hand across that paper and feeling the tactile resistance of the paper pushing back is the way, is the way that the human mind most likes to come up with a concept and work it and then remember it. And right. It's provable that one of the worst ways to try to do that is just pu simply put your hands on a keyboard and go da 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 da. Yeah. You, you, the, it's, it, and it is a shame that whether it's in school, we've seen it, uh, whether it's in the boardroom now or in the presentation room or in the startup room, that that is the mechanism. Uh, uh, go to the whiteboard, please. Go to a sheet yeah. of paper, please. It's more tricky now that we're doing all of this remote, but not really. Um, yeah. And again, your your viewers can't see this, but as you can see, David, I've got a giant whiteboard behind me. Yes. And every time I, I get on a call, I just turn around and grab the pen and say, we're here and we need to go over here. And I am literally drawing on the whiteboard and it provides that immediacy that I think is so important. Yeah. And I'm I'm totally with you on the the idea of visualizing, of, of sketching out also this point of you know, that feeling of writing compared to typing, it just seems closer. It feels like there's less gap between head and what comes out compared yeah. to 
typing. It's it's always an interpretation. I'm I'm intrigued by the the style of your drawing because you know, your your drawing is uh, the opposite of what people might think in terms of well I can't draw. You know my I'm I'm just not a person who's good at drawing. And I'm sure you've had this que- this statement a zillion times. And when you look at your drawing, you di- dissect it, and all your books help people to follow the steps. The drawings are simple. Now that doesn't. I think there's a, a danger of simplistic, but they're simple and relatively easy to create. Now, of course, do it like you do is is sort of a, an art form. But my understanding is you feel everybody can draw, and your style is to keep it in that simple form. So. What's the thinking? Is there any kind of research about that simplicity, or was it something you just evolved yourself and found that it works? How, how oh, David, how much time do how much time do we have? You've <laughs> just you've just uh, this is this is the box that you've just opened, and and the 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 tools and the ideas will now come out. So, sure. so a couple of top of mind thoughts. Uh, the first one is when we talk about drawing, the drawing that I'm thinking of and encouraging people to do is not an artistic process at all. Nobody cares about the quality of your drawing. Does your dog look like a dog? Nobody cares. Is that a beautiful rendering of a person? Nobody cares. The drawing that we're talking about is a thinking process, and it doesn't need to require anything more than a few circles and squares and triangles and arrows. And what we're trying to do is unpack. Imagine, let's let's draw in the air for a moment. Let's let's mm. just paint a picture. Imagine a plate of spaghetti with noodles just woven in and out throughout each other, and it's just covered with sauce and it's crazy. And you can't make head or tail of it. It's just a plate of spaghetti. That is the way most of us tend to see most problems when we first look at them. Mm. And what we can do with drawing is say, hold on, it's not a plate of spaghetti, or maybe it is, but what do we have in it? We have a number of lines. Let's just draw out those lines. We have a couple of meatballs. Let's just draw out those circles. The idea is, metaphorically, of course, how can we take something that is overwhelmingly complicated and through understanding how do we neuromechanically see the world, unpack it into its simplest, simplest, most elemental shapes, not to oversimplify it, but mm-hmm. to clarify it. Yes. And what we're trying, what we're seeking to do through the drawings, Oliver Wendell Holmes, I believe, we're looking for the simplicity that is on the other side of complexity. We are not simplifying in order to make it dumb. Yeah. We're simplifying it in order to make it clear. And there might still be a number of elements on our piece of paper after we've unpacked that metaphorical plate of spaghetti, Hmm. but at least we can now see them for what they are and sort of, again, metaphorically pick them up one by one and say, well, what do we think about this piece and how does it interact with that piece? And it's that clarification process that is the core of the drawing. And secondly, um, about the simplicity or the the character in the drawings that I like, the way, David, I say it is I've, I've spent the last 50 years, literally 50 years learning to draw badly really well. And uh, I can draw well. Um, I, yeah. I, I drew all the time as a kid, and, and I actually have a degree from university in painting. So yes, I have learned composition skills, and I have trained myself through practice to be good at drawing. That's a skill and, and uh, an expertise that I have. But what I've tried to do through thousands of hours of working with others who don't have that skill is turn off my expertise and watch how other people try to do what I know how to do and learn this kind of beginner's mind idea. Learn from the true experts who are the people who haven't drawn in 30 years. What are they drawing? What are they seeing? Uh, does, does that make sense, what I've shared? Very much so. And uh, what I see, I love that, that comment about we're not making it dumb, we're making it clear. So clarity is, I think, the ultimate goal of a pitch, of a presentation, is to remove all the misunderstandings and just let the stuff be clear under the spotlight so that they get it. And making something simpler and reducing complexity is often the way to, to get there. So I, I, And I love the, the, the style of your, your drawing and this ease with which you bring people that, you know, as I say, they, they think they can't draw, but... Actually, they can draw this. They can draw those 
those shapes, those flows that you describe in your books. And universally, after in a workshop setting, uh, typically, David, 80% of the business people in the room, when I come in and say, we're going to draw today, groan and say, I can't draw. Yes. And we disabuse everybody of that misguided illusion in about four minutes, because there's just some very simple exercises drawing simple shapes. That, oh, I can draw. And then within half an hour, a truly remarkable shift takes place. Every single person, when given a flip chart with a couple of simple shapes that they've drawn on that flip chart, when you ask them to stand in front of the room and share with us the idea that those shapes represent, every single one of those people is not only capable of talking about the drawing that they're showing you, but adding to the drawing as they talk. Think about that. This is back to that classic notion for all of us that have ever been in school, that favorite teacher that we had who, whether it was on a computer or on the old overhead projector or on a chalkboard, whatever the tool was, that one teacher who we all know of who was able to explain the idea at the same time that he or she was drawing it on the chalkboard. Hmm. We have that in us. All it is, all it is, is learning a couple of underlying tools and tricks and then practice. And the practice is, is 10, 15 minutes is all it takes. And you've just unleashed an entirely new way to uh, present your idea. Fantastic. I just want to pick up on that in a moment. I, I was going to ask you what age you started drawing, by the way, because I've just heard that you, you've actually trained a, new, a degree in painting, if I understood right. It sounds, sounds great. But that it, you were also drawing as a kid. Were you, was that something, one of your fascinations as a kid? Oh, always, David. It was the first yeah. thing I remember doing was drawing. And that is not unusual. I have two daughters. They're now in their early 20s. Hmm. And when I reflect back on their first communication, out, outbound communication from hmm. themselves out into the world, of course, it was crying and squawking. And then once it became a little bit more thoughtful, a yeah. little bit of singing and a lot of drawing, long before anybody knew how to read and write, we would take a crayon or a, a piece of chalk on the sidewalk and draw. I just never stopped doing it. It's yeah. something that we all all do. I just found that for myself, I could go into flow. I could go into a zone before we even knew what flow was um, with that pen in hand and a sheet of paper and just spend hours creating a world or trying to clarify or unpack what was in my own mind. And I just never stopped doing it. Yeah. My little boy is uh, doing this. I, my, both my, my my wife and I, we we're not uh, we we are more word people. We tend to be very focused on words. We're both reading a lot, writing a lot. Uh, but my little boy is really fascinated with drawing. He's constantly yeah. doing that and uh, drawing all kinds of weird and wonderful things. So it's it's something we we really admire and encourage. It's uh, it's great to how, see. How old is he? If I can ask, he is six years old. No, not, there, there he is. There he is. Yeah. Now, if I might, David, um, because here's the other thing that happens and the reason why most adults come into the room and 80% of them say, oh, no, no, Dan, I'm not going to draw, yeah. is right around age six, seven, eight, just about the time that someone is starting to learn to read, two things happen. Number right. one, typically an adult at some point says, what's that a drawing of? And the child says, oh, this is a drawing of a car. And the adult says, that's a terrible car. Cars don't look like that. Right. And so there's this erosion. And, and you could just see the kid just deflate. They yeah. weren't super confident in their drawing anyway, but now it's gone and they'll never do it again. That's adverse effect number one. Yes. Adverse input number two. And I find this one just patently awful is right around first or second grade. When we are starting to become competent with reading, there is this moment where intelligence by most of the teachers or the school board, what have you, becomes associated with only the verbal and the picture right. books are taken away as if you needed the picture to learn how to draw. But yeah. now that you know how to read, you don't need the picture anymore, which to me is insane. That's like saying uh, the drawings are the training wheels on your bicycle, which is the bicycle of learning to read. And the moment you learn to read, we're going to take the training wheels off. I think that's crazy. The analogy yeah. I make is the words are the back wheel and the drawings are the front wheel. Right. And, and what most of us have done is, is by removing the visual part from our communication skills, we're trying to ride around on unicycles 
yeah. if this analogy makes, which is terrible. It's a terrible mode of transportation. And yet we've intentionally hobbled ourselves by yeah. removing that. So I'll get off my soapbox now, but that's, uh, please encourage your six-year-old boy to keep going, please. Yeah. Now we always ask him, well, tell us about that picture. And he explains, and, and we're always just fascinated by what's there. But I understand what you mean. I think those early judgments are the things that's also something that can cause fear for people doing public speaking, for example. My yeah. my daughter does show and tell. So in Netherlands, they don't call it that. But maybe you you talk about a, uh, a location or a book or something at the front of the class. And uh, all it needs is one kid to laugh. And then suddenly the nerves kick in. And even if you don't know why the kid laughed, maybe they laughed at something else, but they feel that judgment. And that is the trigger for the fear of public speaking to come in. It, it was really shocking to me that already at eight, she she started having that feeling. And then we follow a process, actually the process I train adults uh, of sketching out on post-it notes, getting the storyline. And now she follows that. And that gives her the structure to get hold of the the, the task and, and take control. So the David, could right we there. could we go off off tangent for sure. a moment on on that, or rather on a tangent on exactly that? So, um, b- before you started recording, you and I talked a little bit about the yeah. fact that we've lived in places around the world and things like that. So, although mm-hmm. I am American, born and raised, and have spent most of my life in the United States, states, I also had many many years of work, both in Asia and living and working in mm-hmm. uh, in Europe, and that means that I have a lot of friends here in San Francisco who are. European or Asian immigrants into the Mm. American experience whose kids are of the similar age to my own. And universally, when we go have dinner or something, and I talk with with, uh, other parents who are about my age who um, are experiencing the American educational system for the first time because they grew up in Europe or in Asia, and now their children are in an American school, they universally say exactly what you just did. They say, I'm amazed. I had no idea the emphasis that's placed in American schools on public speaking. Mm. And I think I didn't know that either. I didn't know that that was a, a thing, but it is right. absolutely true in the schools that I'm familiar with in the United States in general, public schools and some private schools, there is absolutely a recognition that part of you becoming a successful adult is having experience and confidence yep. in being able to go to the front of the room and share your idea. And that is so out of character in many ways for, let's say, many uh, cultures in other parts of the world where the last thing you want a child to do is to learn to self-advocate loudly. Yeah, uh, And there's a, there's a positive and negative there, but I think there's probably a reason in there embedded some why where some good sort of classic American sales figures, a kind of a, I don't know, a Dale Carnegie type, there's, there's something in this idea of salesmanship that is associated back to feeling comfortable telling your story. And I don't think it's about selling necessarily. That's how we interpret it as adults, Mm. but it's about being able to advocate for your point of view in an eloquent and persuasive way. And I think it's beautiful that that is something to encourage kids from the youngest age possible. Yeah. And actually uh, you're, you're absolutely right. So if you, if you compare America with the rest of Europe, I've, I've asked, many, many people from many, many different countries. When was the first time you got any public speaking help or, 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 or it was even a thing in your life, in your education? And most of them say either uh, at the end of their university days or in their first or second job. My, my first training was when I was 25. Uh, I never had any public speaking help before then. And you know, my belief is if we could give kids the tools you, know, yeah. you quote as well as one of people's biggest fears of public speaking. If we could give people the tools at an early age, we could help them overcome their their fear before they even feel it. And yeah. the earlier that we give it to them, then they get the opportunity to try that out. They find out what works and so on. Uh, so I'm a big advocate for actually, if ever I could do a TEDx talk, it would be on that topic. Why don't we teach uh, kids public speaking before they become terrified? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's a uh, it's it's an important part of life. You're, you're constantly communicating, as you as, I like your description, advocating your point of view. You're bringing your idea, your perspective. So that's uh, it's a key part. Yeah. I wanted to pick up on one thing about visualization. So sometimes I talk with uh, with people who are working, especially in corporates, and they are 
creating PowerPoint slides that are incredibly complex with a lot of text, a lot of detail, a lot of process flows and stuff jammed in together. And I encourage to simplify, spread the information on more slides, reduce the information, make it more visual, help people follow A, B, C, D. But I also sometimes get the feedback. Yeah, you know, people will think we're not properly prepared if the detail isn't on the slide. I've had that as a from senior management in, in a really big company. And that and then I've tested that and found that that's actually a process. People go through internal tests of the pitch and they get knocked back if it's too simple. Now, how how do you see that? It's you know, it seems to me that's that's a bit of a handbrake on how do you get clarity on the story? Sure. I mean that's that is Again, David, your questions are, are these are the gold-plated questions. So yes, working with large consulting companies, um, which I have done many, many times as mm. well, the question you just asked is the one, okay, so Dan, you're telling me that I've got a presentation to give in front of a bunch of very senior executives, and yes. you want me to draw simple pictures. And I say, yes, but I say, that's not the entire part, because what I need you to do is prepare as thoroughly as you did prior. And what we're going to do is we're going to create what we call a visual executive summary that will occupy the first seven minutes of your presentation. And then the remaining 53 minutes is where everything else is in an appendix. And what you've done by giving the seven minutes of high-level overview, that 30,000-foot story, Hmm. you have now told the whole story so that someone in the audience could say, I get it, but I really need more detail on that nuance that you that took place on step five. Yes. And you say, thank you. Excellent question. Please turn to page 35. And yes. we can now spend an hour on that. So what we're doing is we are not giving short shrift to the process of coming up with the idea and being diligent and thoughtful. On the contrary, I'm actually obligating people to add another step on top of it. And that step is, again, the simplification that takes place after the complexity that you've put into your PowerPoint. The real problem is that we tend in those situations you're describing to feel such an incredible need to prove that we know everything, that we put everything on the frigging slide, which guarantees two things. Very few people are going to pay attention for very long. And by virtue of putting every detail on the slide, the moment that we throw that slide up on the screen, or even as a printout in front of someone, we're no, we have lost the narrative thread because what's going to happen is someone in the audience will look through that entire set of 80 ideas that are on that sheet and find the one that they're most interested in and not listen to anything else. Yes. So the idea would be we as the presenter have to control the narrative. And the way to do that is make it a story make it high level and dramatic. And when I say dramatic, I don't necessarily mean that everything has to be like Star Wars and Harry Potter, although that helps, but dramatic in the sense that there's a rich story being told, even if at a high level, so that after you're done, after your seven minutes, anybody can say, well, take me back through that that nuance and you are fully prepared to do it. Does does that make sense? Very much so. I I advise people to keep, uh, have a short, short pitch, some similarity here where instead if you have a 30 minute meeting instead of a 25 minute presentation plan a three minute a a quick summary of okay so let's remind why we're here now what would you like more detail on and if they say give me more information on such and such ka-ching slide 37 and away we go we go into the details but i think the difference is when they invite you to to offer the detail it's open house, then that's fine. They're actually asking for detail on that specific thing. If they haven't asked for details on 20 different things, it it's not necessarily the right thing to give them the detail on 20 different things. Let's find out which of the 20 things they need detail on by giving them that summary. So I think there's a there's a real mapping of, of, of the idea there. I'd um, like to add one more thing, David, at that point. Yeah. If, if What... what we're uncovering here feels to me a little bit about overcoming a lack of confidence. My, I need yeah. to present. So therefore yeah. I have to put everything because I'm likely to forget half of what I want to say. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to put all of it on the slide to overwhelm my audience with my sheer brilliance. Okay. But there's a better way to, to appear brilliant, which is to actually know 
what you're talking about. Nobody appears more brilliant, rightfully so, than the person who goes into the meeting with nothing but three or four blank sheets of paper or lightly uh, illustrated or lightly written sheets of paper. And then with pen in hand in real time, tells the story of what's really going on. The only person who can do that is the person who is truly an expert in the topic. So the real answer here is if if you don't know what it well what it is that you're trying to pitch, please don't pitch it because you are not an expert. And if your concern is being perceived as not an expert, well, your concern is valid because you're not. And I don't mean this in a pejorative way. No. But if you really want to win the audience, really truly win the audience and whether that's winning the pitch competition or getting the biggest mind share or simply having your audience leave feeling good about what you, what they've heard then actually know your stuff and the best way to know your mm-hmm. stuff is to at, after you've done all of that prep work to then in my book go back and craft take take that last hour and craft your pop-up version of the same thing that you've just done and yeah. that's the one that will prove that you really know what you're talking about yeah, and that helps build your certainty, your confidence, and makes that story land. Yeah, yeah, great. And the audience, the audience can smell it. I mean, yeah. our audiences yeah. are very smart. Uh, they can tell when you're faking. Yeah. Um, and so the best way to not fake is don't. And the best way to do that is actually know what you're talking about. Absolutely. Just one thing that intrigued me a bit in what I found about you uh, through various research was you're helping White House administration, especially the Obama administration. How do you help the Obama or any White House administration with illustration? Funny story. So this is several years ago, because obviously we've been through a couple of administrations since since President Obama. But uh, fairly early in uh, President Obama's first term, uh, you might remember the world at that time. We were just beginning to suffer the first real estate crash, which became the whole credit swap uh, economic meltdown globally. So the first thing he needed to do when he came into office was uh, just sort of restabilize the American economy and, and by doing so, hopefully help stabilize much of the world's economy. And that in, took a lot of investment and time. You remember back in 2008, mm-hmm. and that worked well. And then the second thing that he had to do was look at the American healthcare system, which presidents for over a hundred years had mm. been trying to reform because there is no such thing as the American healthcare system. It's not like uh, in the UK. It's not like in Europe. It's not like mm. in Canada. It's not even like Singapore or part places in Asia. There is no American healthcare system. It is a series of disjointed islands. Each one of those islands offers one particular aspect of healthcare. One of those islands might be who pays for it, Another item might be uh, where you get your x-rays. So the American healthcare system has been broken Hmm. essentially since day one. Uh, And so uh, President Obama put in place what he called the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, otherwise known as Obamacare, which was an attempt to, after 100 years of presidents from Democrat to Republican, trying to reform the healthcare system. This was one big, bold move, and it made no sense. It made absolutely no sense what he was trying to do, not because it wasn't well-intentioned, but because Mm. the underlying infrastructure of the system that was being fixed was so impossible to describe. So I decided on my own, without an invitation from anyone, to say, am I for or against American healthcare reform? I'm going to do a little bit of research on my own, try to understand what's in the law that's being passed by reading the law. It was 1,500 pages long, working with friends who come from the healthcare industry and know what they're talking about more than me. And in the end, David, we ended up drawing a series of simple pictures that explained exactly as you and I are talking about this visual executive summary, right. the underlying broken nature of the, of the American uh, healthcare system and how the Obama plan sought to rectify that at a mm-hmm. high level. I drew those pictures and I posted them online and millions of people started to view them through <laughs> LinkedIn and SlideShare and other digital tools pre, pre-Facebook. Right. And I got an invitation from Fox News, which interestingly enough for people who might not be familiar with it, uh, is Rupert Murdoch's, formerly Rupert Murdoch's big news engine in, in, in America. It's, and Fox News is really the more uh, conservative side, to put it lightly, of news. Oh. So the fact that They called me, Fox News representatives called me and said, Dan, these drawings are brilliant. 
clearly you're one of the most clear thinkers about American healthcare. Could we get you on air? So they flew me out to New York and they gave me seven minutes of airtime on Fox News of all channels to draw my pictures about Obama's Affordable Care Act. And what was remarkable is the commentators who politically are completely unaligned with President Obama. By the time we were done, they said, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I was like, (laughs) yes, it does. It makes a lot of sense. Now, Now that you understand what we're talking about, now you can make an informed decision about whether you like it or not. Yeah. But let we cut through a lot of the hype and the and the and the lack of clarity. And the next day I came home and I got a call and it was someone saying, Is this Dan Rome who was on Fox News yesterday drawing pictures about the Obama healthcare plan? And I said, Yes, who's this? And the voice said, This is President Obama's communications team in Washington, DC. Can we fly you out here and have you show us how did you do that? So, so they did. They flew me out to D.C. a couple of times, and I had an opportunity to work with members of President Obama's communication staff on showing them how to use pictures on a whiteboard to explain complicated political and economic ideas. And for a brief shining moment, David, and this is the close of the story, mm. uh, I can't take full credit for it, but part of the credit, there was for a brief shining moment, the official White House whiteboard. And it was available at that time on whitehouse.gov slash whiteboard. It's no longer there, uh, where various members of the cabinet and the economic team uh, would go to the whiteboard and with a pen in hand, do everything that you and I have just described. And some of them were utterly brilliant. And it was it was a magnificent shining moment in the power of visual clarity in the political spectrum. And I worry that we will never see that again. <laughs> <laughs> I love the story. And uh, there's so much value that could come from clarity on politics, on all sorts of different topics, just by that simplicity of helping people unpack things, draw it out, and get to grips with the components. Hey, Dan, we're, we're really out of time. And I think we could talk really all night. Um, but uh, your book is coming out, or is already out. Actually, it's literally yesterday, right? It was, yesterday it was, yeah. Yesterday it came out. So I'm sure there's plenty of things to do to uh, uh, support that whole launch. I encourage anybody to get hold of any of Dan's books, uh, especially the pop-up pitch, but also Draw to Win, Show and Tell, Back of, a nap- of the Napkin. These are great books to help people get to grips with that visualization and walk, people, walk anybody through the process to be able to communicate your ideas. And I love your optimism, Dan. I think that what you mentioned at the beginning, you know, optimism and future thinking, that that brings people in. And I love the whole optimism of the way you bring your story. Thank you so much for your time, Dan. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. David, my, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you need more help with your pitch, go to best3minutes.com slash academy. And you'll find our pitch masterclass with loads of practical tools and examples to help you make that winning pitch. You'll also find courses on presenting online, creating a video pitch, and managing your nerves. Thanks for listening. Give our show a rating and share your thoughts about this episode on Twitter. Our handle is at best3minutes. See you next time on The Essential Pitch.